Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekly. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. In a single day, reality in Israel was transformed as it was unexpectedly launched into what looks like a major war, which is in the process of unfolding. Everything is changing. Events are progressing rapidly, but I am here in a last-minute emergency podcast organized to talk with two people who understand as well or better than any of the rest of us as to what has happened and what it means. With me in the studio is Aluf Ben, editor-in-chief of Haaretz, and Yossi Melman, who is a senior analyst for Haaretz, who specializes in military and intelligence affairs and has written several books diving deep into the workings of Israel's military intelligence. Aluf, let me start with you. Can you explain exactly how events unfolded yesterday, when, how early people understood that an unprecedented situation was occurring. Yesterday at uh, 6.30 in the morning, it was a holiday in Israel, large force of Hamas from Gaza, hundreds of people, maybe a thousand people, invaded into Israel. They were able to cross the border fence quite easily. They attacked several army bases protecting the fence and were able to take control of them uh, pretty quickly and then attacked dozens of civilian villages along the Gaza border, taking hostages, killing people, killing families, taking children, older people, younger people, wherever they could, dead or alive, back into Gaza. They attacked a party that was held, a festival that was held outside in the woods near Gaza with the hundreds of people, of young people there. And again, many, many managed to escape. I say many were killed and others were taken hostage into Gaza. The rocket launches, did they take place before the invasion, infiltration, during the infiltration? Were they being used as a distraction before the infiltration? How did those two dynamics play out? Because most people like me, you know, became aware that anything was happening because of sirens, because of uh, going into our shelters, because of the rocket attacks. Well, we don't know uh, what was the exact operational plan of Hamas, but we interpret the rocket launches mainly as a, as a way to divert the Israeli attention. So it took several hours at least from what we see from the military reaction, from the public reaction of the government and of the army, that it took several hours for the commanders, both in the fields, both at the cabinet level, etc., to realize what was going on. It took hours for the army to come back and try to retake some of the civilian villages, and there is still fighting in several of them. It's still not over. People are still held hostage in their villages. It, it took a long while for the entire picture to be clear whoever was in charge, was a total surprise. There was no intelligence indicating anything uh, remotely similar to that. And not even, there was a lot of talk in recent months in Israel at the backdrop of the palace coup led by Netanyahu to break the civil sector, to break the military leadership, to break the independence of the judiciary, etc. There was a lot of tension within Israel. There was a lot of protest against the government, little trust between Netanyahu and the leaders of the military, of the intelligence community, the minister of defense, etc. There was in the air a warning that something bad was about to happen because the enemies of Israel, 
stretching from Iran through Hezbollah in Lebanon, Syria, Palestinian groups in the West Bank, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza, etc. We're sensing that Israel was weakest that they could see, that it's torn apart from within, and that would be a right time to attack. But none of these warnings included uh, anything remotely similar to what happened yesterday. This is the worst blow that Israel has suffered ever in any of its wars since 1948, any of the terrorist attacks in Israeli territory and abroad, nothing remotely similar to that. In 73, Israel were taken by surprise, but the fighting took place far away from the population centers and almost exclusively included the military, militaries fighting each other. This is not the case. This is first and foremost attack against civilians, and for the first time, we have dozens, we don't know the exact number, but dozens of military prisoners of war and civilian hostages in Gaza. People are still trying desperately to find out what happened to their family members. We know people, you know, friends whose children are missing or dead. It's a very, very unprecedented and very, very sad situation to, to all of us here. Yossi, talk about the intelligence failure, please. The world is asking Israeli intelligence is vaunted. We're have Gaza is a relatively small piece of territory. We're supposed to have eyes and ears on Hamas and Islamic Jihad all of the time in all kinds of different ways. Is this technical failure? Is this a failure of imagination? From what you've seen and observed, what happened? What went wrong? First of all, when you talk to people in authority within the intelligence community and within the military, they are confused, they are puzzled, they don't know what happened. They have no explanation. So it's almost impossible for me to try to understand what happened. They don't know. Certainly, it was a huge failure. Israel has been uh, prided as having the best intelligence in the world. The Mossad is like, you know, it's like a, a synonymous to success. You say intelligence, you say Mossad, although it's not the uh, mission of Mossad to monitor Gaza. But still, the intelligence failed, and for many Israelis, what happened uh, on Saturday, 50 years and one day after the Yom Kippur War of October 73, is reminiscent of the same failure. But there is a big difference. Before the war in 73, the intelligence was there. Israel had the intelligence, a lot of pieces of intelligence, but they didn't how to read it or didn't want to analyze it in the correct way. This time, there was no clue. There was nothing. And it's the failure of the military intelligence. It's the failure of the domestic security service, Shabak, which both organizations having technological means to bug telephones, to listen to the other side, to recruit agents, human intelligence, and all that huge, huge machine of intelligence gathering didn't function. In addition to being in the middle of terrible tragedy, crisis, we're all mourning for people who have been lost. We're worrying about people who have been kidnapped. We're worrying about our friends and family who are uh, going into the military right now to fight what looks like it's going to be a massive war. It just feels like there's a crisis of faith. There's a crisis of belief in the ability of these forces that, again, you know, the country puts its heart, soul, population in 
to basically protect its citizens. Yesterday, the stories of people trapped in their shelters, some of them wounded, bleeding, begging for help, come save me, come rescue me for hours and hours. I mean, I don't think those scars are going to heal so fast. How in the world do you fight a war like the one we're about to enter in when people seem to have so little faith in those who are calling the shots? The traumas of the Yom Kippur War, we just commemorated its 50th anniversary, and uh, the entire media and Israeli television, etc., were full of stories retelling the story of how we failed in Yom Kippur what happened? Who was to blame? The Prime Minister Golda Meir or the military or the intelligence, one arm of intelligence or each other, they're still fighting the story and, and this, this will probably be the same. Look, we don't have other people to trust. I think that Netanyahu is the main responsibility for this tragedy lies with Netanyahu. Netanyahu, who led a policy for many years of relative conservative policy vis-a-vis Hamas and vis-a-vis using force in general. And he was very, very reluctant to watch over the funerals of soldiers and, and civilians. But in the last year, he built a coalition that pledged to do whatever it could to annex the West Bank, to drive away the Palestinians as much as possible, to build more settlements, to bring more Jews to Temple Mount, to Al-Aqsa, which is a very, very thorny, if not the thorniest issue among Muslims and Arabs in general and, and, and Hamas in particular as a reason, as an excuse to go to war. And last but not least, strategically, he boasted that he was about to sign a peace deal with Saudi Arabia that would not involve the Palestinians, would get nothing. And clearly Hamas, regardless of what's going to happen to unfold in the coming weeks and months, has been able to derail that Saudi deal forever or for a very long time. You'll see there's a lot of speculation about Iran, that maybe this whole thing, whatever it is or is going to evolve in, maybe the trigger was pulled by Iran's desire to derail the pending Saudi normalization deal and that it's operating its proxies in Gaza, perhaps soon in the north, inside the West Bank. If you ask the question, why now, that that's the answer. What do you think of those theories? Alison, I have no doubt that Iran at least was in the knowledge of the preparations and maybe providing some advice to Hamas how to conduct such a battle, which was well-coordinated, well-orchestrated, very effective, unfortunately, causing Israel this traumatic feeling that we were not in, in control at all. So yes, Iran is pulling the strings behind Almost everything which is going around Israeli borders, whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Gaza, and above all, the Islamic Jihad, which is a proxy of, direct proxy of Iran. I tend to believe that what happened with Hamas was a balloon test to try to sense the waters, whether Israel is resilient or not. And the background of the divisions in Israeli society, the protest movement, the weakening of the public, uh, the feeling that the government is not functioning, the opposition to the government. So Hamas, Iran, Hezbollah feel that Israel is very weak, as Alouf said. And that's why they were much more, had more chutzpah maybe to try now. But above all, they are trying to test the waters to see what would be the Israeli reaction. And if the Israeli reaction is weak now and would be perceived as weak, maybe Hezbollah is uh, waiting, you know, at the wings to operate. And we already saw today 
which is uh, Sunday, a little bit of clashes in the north between Hezbollah and the Israeli army. Aluf, do you agree with that analysis? And again, do you draw a line between talk of Saudi normalization and what just happened? And do you agree with what Yossi said about the testing the waters and sensing weakness, which I guess would add up to, wow, we need to have this massive, powerful reaction attack on Gaza in order to dissuade the other um, fronts from joining in? Well, there are two issues here. Well, first of all, I don't know what was Iran's involvement and how much anybody in Tehran knew about this plan and who was privy to the Hamas operational secrets. I have no idea. Clearly for Israel, there are two main issues regarding its reaction. One is to prevent, as much as possible, escalation in the north. The Hezbollah has, by orders of magnitude, more firepower against Israel than Hamas. Hezbollah could destroy large parts of Israel and its military infrastructure and civilian infrastructure with rockets and missiles. There is no easy answer to that. And preventing other fronts in the West Bank, in mixed Jewish-Arab towns within Israel. Again, we have elements in the cabinet that are far-right parties want the pretext for this escalation because they want to drive the Palestinians south, because they want to prove that Arabs and Jews cannot live together. So this is one danger. And the other danger is, and, and this is in the Gaza front, the main concern is going to be the dozens of hostages and prisoners of war held by Hamas or by other Palestinian groups in Gaza. How much of a force will that be in the calculation of do we go in on the ground or do we not go in on the ground? The main concern in this situation facing Gaza is the safety and the fate of these hostages and the counter-demand by Hamas to release all the Palestinian prisoners, thousands of Palestinian prisoners held in Israel, which Israel has been very reluctant to release even few of them in return for two dead bodies of soldiers held by Hamas since 2014 and two civilians who crossed the border into Gaza and, and held by Hamas. This is a different story, but this is going to be the main concern to Hamas. This is the insurance policy. This is the human shield. And this is going to be the test for the Israeli leadership and for the Israeli public opinion in the coming weeks. Yossi, based on what you've observed, written about over the years in hostage situations, which we know are nothing close to the scale that we're seeing now, what will be the dynamic and the considerations of how much to give, concede in order to, first of all, learn the fate of the hostages, who they are and what their condition is, and to get their safe return? Had I been in a position to make decisions, which I am not, I would advise that first thing now, Israel should start via intermediaries like the Red Cross and Qatar and Egypt to try to make inroads into Hamas and to offer some sort of a humanitarian corridor to exchange hostages, women and children in return for Palestinian women, Palestinian terrorist uh, women who are held in Israeli prisons and young Palestinians who have been arrested by the IDF on charges of throwing stones or uh, other minor uh, clashes of that sort. It's possible. But Hamas is going to want to play their strong card. They are going to want to get their leadership. Just, their just as another example for the disarray in the Israeli government in the past year, there is no, usually there's, there used to be a coordinator for prisoners of war and missing in action in the prime minister's office. I think for over a year, the job has been vacant and there was no effort even to recruit someone for the job because all the effort of the government 
Well, look, there, there are things that Netanyahu signed in his coalition deals. The most, what was, appears now to be bizarre, outwardly, was a law that would equate the status of ultra-Orthodox youngsters learning, studying the Torah in yeshivas to the soldiers who were killed and taken prisoner on the Gaza border yesterday. And the main thing for the next Knesset session that's beginning next week was supposed to be that law that Netanyahu pledged to the ultra-Orthodox parties to pass. This shows that there was a total disconnect between the Israeli political arena and the real danger across the border that was about to blow up. Just like 1973, there was total disregard for the enemy. The enemy was seen as weak, as not daring enough to fight against the mighty IDF and the Israeli Air Force, etc., etc., with its superior intelligence, and all these stories that we told ourselves. And there was a belief that Hamas wanted to run a country. They wanted to be an authority. They wanted to be in charge, that their heart wasn't in terrorism anymore, that they wanted to be seen as, you know, respectable members of the For leadership. For the past two years, there was no rocket attack by Hamas into Israel, only by their junior partner, smaller army, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And when Israel attacked the Islamic Jihad and killed some of its commanders, time and again Hamas stood by and did nothing. And that was seen in Israel as a kind of growing up of Hamas and becoming a more responsible civilian authority rather than an armed group that destroying Israel. Yossi, you watched that. How did they get it so wrong? The intelligence or the entire leadership? Both. In the end, it's one group of people. Well, as Aluf said, described and said, this government is completely dysfunctioning. This government is not interested in solving problems, whether military or security or even social problems. They are just interested in expressing defiance against the opposition, to blame always the opposition, to find scapegoats, to, to blame the other. It's typical of a proto-fascist dictatorship or popular populist government so it's very difficult to now to to see how how things will unfold but i would say that the major major problem facing israel is not just what will happen in in the north in, by hezbollah or even how long this battle with hamas will continue it will continue for days and maybe weeks it's how the israeli public would manage to deal with dozens or even hundreds hostages and prisoners held by Hamas. And I think any Israeli government will eventually cave in one way or another. If we exchange 12 years ago, it was Netanyahu who, who made the decision. One Israeli prisoner of war, a soldier for more than 1,000 Palestinian terrorists in Israeli jails, so we can imagine what will happen if they will demand to release hundreds uh, of their hostages and prisoners of war. In Israeli prisons, there are 7,000 Palestinian uh, security detainees, terrorists, whatever you call them. So I think as an act of preempting, I think we should try to minimize the problem of the hostages by trying to reach some sort of acceptable solution through international intermediaries like this idea of humanitarian corridor, at least to release the women and the children. But obviously, it's a big, big trauma for Israeli public, and it will show in the days and the weeks and even the months that are coming. To close off, I would like you guys to address... First of all, the issue of how do we prosecute what looks like is going to be a major war when we've got 
huge gaps of distrust between our political leadership and our military leadership. I don't know if this is unprecedented in Israeli history. I'm sure we've previously had prime ministers and military leaders who didn't get along as major wars were fought. And that leads to the follow-up question, in order to save our country, do we need opposition leaders like Yair Lapid, like Benny Gantz, to join with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, despite all of their dislike, hesitations, distrust of him, to get in the game and force perhaps him to abandon these far-right, dangerous coalition partners that he has? I'll start with you, Aluf. Well, first of all, it's going to take time for the public to realize what happened. We're talking about hundreds of bereaved families, hundreds of hostage families. It's still unthinkable. You know, I'm saying these numbers, and I'm hearing stories from, from about people I know, and it's horrible. And you've seen your share of wars. I still remember the Yom Kippur War as, as a kid with, you know, with friends not coming to school because the father or brother didn't, didn't come back from the front. But this, this is different. About this trust, we see in some of the, of the, the hardcore BBist movement, WhatsApp groups, we see they just blame the military leadership for treason. That they did it on purpose. They allowed Hamas in in order to get rid of Bibi. Such level of mistrust, let alone in the open, again, I can't even imagine. And again, these people have to work together now to, to save the country, as you said. I think that Lapid and Gantz are somehow on the way in, but there is a debate between them. Gantz is willing to get into the government as it is, with Smotrich and Bengvir in key positions, Lapid demands that Bibi would show them the way out and just establish a more centrist, a more conservative government. So far, Netanyahu is reluctant to do that because that might seal his political fate after the war. So there's a big hand-wringing going on over that. I think that Lapid is right that managing that situation with people like Smotrich and Bengvir, who want the conflict, want to solve the conflict. And as long as they are in power, Netanyahu tells the public that he is insistent on going on with his demolition of democracy and building an authoritarian theocratic state. Otherwise, why keep them? He can't argue in, in earnest that they have any meaningful advice to give him. Last night at the cabinet session, Smotrich said which, that Israel should bomb Gaza regardless of the fate of the hostages. If that's the advice, why keep them in, unless it is for a political purpose on the day after. So you would take the Lapid position? You would go, I'm saying theoretically, you know, if you were one of them, uh, Gansa Lapid, you would go into the government. I support if, the Lapid position, yes. Yeah. I too support the uh, Lapid position. I don't think that Gans should join the government as long as uh, Bibi is uh, outflanked by his uh, extremist radicals like Smotrich and Benkvir and the others. I think when the smoke of war clears, it may take days or weeks, the Israeli public, as it happened in 73, will demand answers, not just from the military and the intelligence uh, chiefs, but also from Netanyahu. That's another hurdle problem for Netanyahu on top of all his portfolio of being accused and facing trials. So I doubt that this government will survive. It may take a few months, but one way or another, it will collapse because the public, which you ask about the public, if it's strong enough and can go to war when there is such a mistrust between the leadership and the public. Yesterday, on Saturday, people who are in the protest movement 
were called into duty, the reservists. Right, the traitors. And the traitors, <laughs> the anarchists. Yes, so I think Israel is still strong and united, but it would not tolerate a government which is responsible for one of the worst tragic failures in the history of the country. Yep. Aluf, can you even think about the day after? It's too early to tell, both uh, domestically and, and again. We don't really know what the day before after would look like, what kind of fighting this would entail, over what fronts. It's really the beginning. Well, this podcast is not going to have a clear conclusion because we are, again, still in the fog of war and can't really assess even what's happening, let alone how it will turn out. But in this atmosphere, I'm really grateful to both of you for coming to record today. Aluf, Yossi, thank you and good luck to all of us. Thank, thank you. you. And that's it for this special episode of Haaretz Weekly. Thanks so much to my guests, Yossi Melman and Aluf Ben, to my producer, Amir Factor, and editor, Maya Ben-Nissan. I'm Alison Kaplan-Sommer, and until next week, Shalom from Tel Aviv. Thank you.